The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest today is Matthew Dixon. Matthew is the founder of MindAid.ca. It's the first of its kind website promoting mental health care in developing nations, where you can find all the um, mental health uh, care sites in one place. Okay, so all the organizations involved in that, you can find it in this one location. All right. He also, as part of his resume, he's biked across Canada, which I think is super cool. It's an amazing uh, achievement. He did that when he was 20. And he's also uh, recovered from schizophrenia, or maybe you should say is still in the process of recovering from schizophrenia. It's not something that ever goes away. But um, yeah, Matthew, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. Not a problem, man. So, all right. So MindAid, that's the biggest thing here. Okay. So we have kind of a already given kind of a synopsis about what it's about. So talk to us more about MindAid and what makes it so different. Yeah, so I, I've i gone through schizophrenia. I'm feeling pretty darn good now. Um, but in the early years of my recovery, it was it's very, very difficult. And a lady saw me at my worst. She said, I looked like I was walking through a world of flying glass. And that's exactly how I felt. It felt like I was, I, I, wasn't, I was never paranoid with the disease, but uh, some people are, but I never was. But it felt uh, just like I was walking through shrapnel. And my heart went out to people in war-torn countries or in extreme poverty who have mental illness to go through as well. Uh, I was I was in a sleepy part of Canada. Uh, not much was going on here uh, with an okay so-so mental health care system. Um, but uh, it was very, very difficult. It was terrifying. And I don't know why, but I never went looking for content online on mental health in developing countries for many years. I, I got diagnosed with the disease in 1994 when I was 22. And it was 2017 or so. And this TED Talk burbled up into my feed called, uh, well, it was a TED Talk by Vikram Patel. And it was the first bit of content I'd seen on mental health in developing countries. And so I started researching it, and I found that there were groups helping in a number of countries giving basic mental health care. And I said, well, um, these are, it took me a while to find them online. Why don't, why don't I just put them all on one site where people can, uh, and with the hopes that in the future it could be a hub for the cause. And uh, so, yeah, I'm very proud of that. It's been online for five years now. And it's starting to get some traction. It's uh, been a bit slow going. Uh, I wish I, I wished I'd had more traction before, but I've also had to work on my own recovery. I can only take on so much um, that I uh, I'm, I, was, I was I was limited in what I could take on just because of my own mental health. So, but I keep taking on more and more, and I just keep improving mentally. And it was February 11th of 2021, and my symptoms just stopped. Uh, the next year and a half or so, I was in sort of a state of shock, processing, just thinking about what I was going through, having time to reflect. I had peace and contentment for the first time in almost 30 years. And uh, where I am now is I just feel so good about life. Yes, I have days that aren't as good as others, but I'm in the normal r range of emotions and thoughts where I was as a teenager. And uh, it's so nice to be, to be back here again. Yes, I still take my medication. You're going to have a hard time getting me off that. But essentially, all I do is pop a pill. I try to live a healthy lifestyle, which everyone should anyway. And I, I use the word successfully recovered. You could say I'm finally managing my disease or it's in remission, whatever language you want to use. But uh, I I don't really feel inhibited by by much. I'm starting to take on larger things. Mind Aid is starting to get more traction. It was in LA Weekly with 4 million readers about a month or so ago. And I'm starting, I'm in the works of getting a Mind Aid concert or more than one concert up and running, like uh, Band Aid, Earth Aid, Live Aid, Farm Aid, those big concerts back in the 80s and 90s. I would love to have a concert, maybe not that big, but uh, maybe that big, but at least some concerts going on like that. And 
Yeah, I'm also planning a bike ride across Canada again this summer, uh, 2023. I'm planning to, I've got a web page for it, the link's on my website, and I'm very excited about that. If I can show other people that, uh, you, uh, that you can have schizophrenia and do something like this, I think that, I mean, maybe maybe it would give no one hope. Maybe maybe no one's out there thinking I've got schizophrenia and I don't care about some guy biking across Canada. It doesn't give me any hope. But maybe there is. Maybe there is somebody because I know there was a magazine in Canada with schizophrenia uh, called Schizophrenia Digest, and the the uh, person who made that magazine he had schizophrenia, and on the cover of one of the issues years ago was this guy who had schizophrenia and trained competitively for, for cycling. And it showed him front cover of the magazine, all in his gear, going around a corner at high speed on his bike. And I'm like, wow, how does he do that? I could not do that with this disease. I just couldn't. I couldn't train competitively. I didn't have it in me. And I was. I wished I could have done what he did. So maybe now I can be hope to somebody. So, so you said that you were... In 2021, you were symptom-free after nearly 30 years of living with this on a daily basis. So what did that mean that you were symptom-free? What were they, what was life, everyday life uh, for you as, as a schizophrenic prior to that? Yeah, well, some of the symptoms, 75% of people with schizophrenia have hallucinations. Those can be any of the five senses. Some of them, I, I would say most of them are relentlessly tormenting. Some of them, though, can actually be pleasurable or enjoyable. Uh, I never hallucinated. I was in the 25% of people that don't. So some of the other symptoms are disorganized thinking, uh, lack of affect. You just sort of get blunted emotionally. Um, and for me, a lot of it was just uh, thoughts that just disorganized thinking and thoughts that, like thoughts just going a mile a minute. And emotions, uh, probably the worst is the emotions, just the depth, the severity of the emotions that I had. Uh, people, I don't think, could really, I don't think most people could really understand how bad your emotions can really get. Uh, depression, people can say, well, you've got the blues. Well, you know, snap out of it. And, uh, you know, you can, you know, think positive, uh, go do something, go for a walk, go for a run. And you'll be better. But uh, these emotions, they were just off the charts. For most people, anxiety, I had anxiety and depression too. For most people, anxiety is like butterflies in your stomach. I yearned for something as beautiful as butterflies in my stomach. <laughs> it felt like I had a machete through my chest. Yikes. I've heard other people say that. It's like a knife through their chest. And I basically, it was uh, just very very, very, very intense emotions. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, I describe my story to people and people say, Matthew, what you're describing to me is terror. I'm like, yeah, it's like being pushed out of an airplane without a parachute and you're flying to the ground. How would that make you feel? I've never been skydiving or bungee jumping. Um, and especially not without a parachute or anything. <laughs> I don't know what that would feel like. I don't know, but all I know is that's what it felt like to me. That's the best analogy I can come up with. And just before you hit the ground, you're back up there in the airplane and they push you out again. That's your day being pushed out of an airplane without a parachute. It's it's terrifying. So, had, you, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, it's just, you just want it to stop and you're just praying to God that it'll stop. And uh, anyway, so I improved every single week for 27 years from 94 till 2021. Mm -hmm. and with my symptoms and every single week I noticed an improvement, small glacially slow improvements, but I improved. And then one of the last things to go is my vision. Uh, or the last thing, one of the last symptoms to leave was my vision. And, uh, it felt like, uh, if you're, if you see a photo album or photos of somebody's trip to some city or country they went to, they say, here we are in this part of the city, and here we are over here. Here, we're, here we are looking at this. You don't know where in relation to all the other photos, where all those photos were taken. But if you were there, you could say, okay, that's over there, that's over there, that's over right. there. And that's the way my vision felt. I felt like I was looking at, in my own life, what I would see through the day. It felt like I was looking at things that were just disorganized, uh, out of place. I don't know, like my geospatial part of my brain wasn't working. It's like... Uh, 
I would be sitting in the kitchen and I knew where the living room was. I could probably draw, draw you a diagram to scale of what the living room and all the rooms in the house were like. But it felt like the living room wasn't there if I was in the kitchen or if I was in the in the bedroom, it didn't feel like the kitchen was there. It's, it's like everything just sort of stopped at the wall. And it's like, uh, it felt like, for example, we think about the end of the universe where, well, where is that? Is there a brick wall out at the end somewhere saying you've reached the end of the universe? <laughs> it, it's hard to conceive an end to it. And that's what it felt like for my, just the wall in the house. Like it felt like it just wasn't there. Like you're trying to think where the end of the universe is. You, you can't, you can't, you can't picture it's there. You can't feel it's there. And that's what it felt like the other room was. It just didn't exist. And I had to somehow make my way over there if I wanted to go there. And I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Uh, it felt like if I was eating, uh, when you walk, when you eat, you see the food on your fork and then it goes into your mouth and you, and you don't see the food anymore. And you know, you can feel it's, it's where your chin is and where the food is. And it's going down into your, down your throat, into your stomach. You can feel your stomach. But it felt like I had lack of body awareness or something. So, like, when the food went into my mouth, it felt like it just vanished from Earth. Or maybe it was in, like, uh, in China somewhere in, in, a, in, a, in a drawer on a plate. I don't know. Nice. It just felt like it disappeared. And it's uh, th that's the psychosis. It's just uh, time was very different. I had some things in the early years of uh, it felt like if I was walking somewhere, it felt like if I stopped, and turned around and, and walked backwards this, from where I just came, that I would go back in time. I knew that wouldn't happen. I knew I didn't believe that that was something. It just felt like it would, and it kind of freaked me out. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so the vision was the very last symptom to leave, and uh, it's. Uh, but I've I keep improving in other ways, like with because I'm trying to talk more and more things. I'm getting into uh, doing more media interviews. I'm... I'm trying to I've been training myself grooming myself for success to have large numbers of people looking at me my platform what I'm doing because not because I want to be famous because there are people suffering and I'm trying to help them and I can't sit here and not help them I, I have every right to just sit here and go play golf and watch Netflix in my spare time I have every right to do that and in some ways I probably should but I just can't sit here and not help other people going through what I've been through and worse. There are people with mental illness in developing countries who are actually kept in chains. Mm -hmm. Not only do they not, they don't have access to mental health care. There's no psychiatrist. Some, some, psychi some countries have one psychiatrist per million people. And uh, some people are actually kept in chains. They estimate hundreds of thousands in 60 countries are kept in chains. And, and that's not just with treated mental illness. I went through treated mental illness for 27 years. These people are going through untreated mental illness, tied to a tree, tied to a bed with their foot through a log so they can't move anywhere, tied up in the shed with untreated mental illness and poverty, maybe war too. And But there's ways to help. There are groups helping. They've been helping them for many years now. They've helped thousands of people get their mental health back with these models of basic mental health care. These models are low cost, proven effective, and scalable, and the World Health Organization is trying to figure out the best way to roll them out to the masses. In the meantime, these groups are doing it, and I'm trying to build their capacity. And these groups like Strong Minds, Fine Mind, Basic Needs US, Minds Foundation, Partners in Health, CBM UK, they've been helping people for years, and I wish they were more mainstream. I mean, who here listening knows the word UNICEF? Anybody know that word? We all do. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's heard of UNICEF, uh, other large humanitarian org organizations. Um, but who's here? Who, who's, who here is sort of strong minds or fine mind? And they're helping people in countries in Africa. And I just like people to know about them and go on their pages. I encourage you to, the links are on my website. Go to the donate section and you'll see the, them there. I have a brief uh, list of uh, uh, just uh, summary of them so you can get a quick overview of them, but go on their websites, check them out, see if they're a nonprofit you'd want to donate to yeah. and uh, share their posts. If you can't, if you don't have the funds to donate to them and you care about this cause, a lot of them are on social media, share their posts. That's free to do. Get, get talk about it. Yeah. Have conversations with people in the grocery store. Mentioned mindday.ca. Uh, it doesn't take long for people to get it. 
for people who haven't thought of mental health in developing countries. Um, it's we've been donating for for decades to developing countries. We've been buying goats, building schools, drilling wells, mosquito bed nets. Just mention one more thing. It just takes a matter of seconds. For, you see it in someone's head thinking, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I never thought about mental health in developing countries. Oh, yeah. Well, how do you help? Well, minded is, it's minded. I don't have, I don't go into great depth in any one part of the cause. It's more just, uh, I will steer you off in a bunch of different directions for people helping. For unchaining people with mental illness, a hashtag break the chains. There's a platform for that. Robin William, Robin Williams' son, Zach Williams, helps promote that. As does Tim Shriver, founder of the Special Olympics, and Allison Janney, the Hollywood actress. They help promote hashtag break the chains. And there's a pledge there you can sign. They're looking for more signatures to help unchain people. Right. And the link's on my website. It's, uh, I would love to have Mind Aid get more traction and, and help people. It's, uh, this, this is, we're not looking for a solution here. We've basically found a low cost, proven effective, scalable solution. Right. And it's not perfect. Just like our own mental health care systems in developed countries aren't perfect. The good news in, on that is, is some of these basic mental health care models are actually starting to be used in developed countries. Uh, Strong Minds just recently launched Strong Minds America, and they've started working, helping people in America with uh, who don't have access to good mental health care. And they're using these models of basic mental health care in America. Basic Needs US uh, did the same thing. They piloted some programs and with success. So in developing countries, you know, there's a very clear or what seems like a very clear obstacle towards like mental health services, which is like the very um, low cost or the very low standard of living in a lot of these countries where, and there's also like things like corruption and things like that, which also kind of compounds the problem. Um, so that's kind of easy to kind of put your finger on and identify saying, well, this is, this is pretty, this is pretty obviously a cause of why, a lot of these um, problems don't get the kind of attention that they do get. But then as you were talking, I was kind of thinking, because a lot of the stuff that you were describing to me as part of your schizophrenia, um, a lot of it sounded like um, also like dissociative disorder and things like that. Um, now, maybe schizophrenia and dissociative disorder are close cousins to each other. I don't know. I'm not educated in that kind of thing. But it's kind of, well, a lot of it sounded like dissociative disorder. So... What I was thinking as you were speaking is like a lot of these, a lot of what is really a chiefly one problem can be easily masked by something else. It seems like something else because it's so vividly in front, front and center of what's of what you're seeing in front of you. Does that make any sense? Like one, like some, like one symptom or one illness can easily mask another where the underlying problem is something else. That yeah, sense? symptoms can be similar to from one mental illness to another. There's overlaps. Right. It's uh, yeah, yeah. So I was just kind of thinking. You think that's probably has a lot to do with why, like certain mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, kind of fly under the radar, or just kind of don't get very very much attention. I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've asked myself that for years. Why can't I talk about schizophrenia? Why can't I talk mm -hmm. about mental illness? We're talking about mental illness so much more now. Mm -hmm. Schizophrenia needs more attention. It's, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're slowly talking about it more and more. And I'm hoping with my bike ride across Canada, I plan to be the world's first person with schizophrenia to bike across Canada. I've already done it before, but it was before I got sick. And I'm hoping that, uh, It'll just start conversations about this. There are, on my website, in the About section, there are links to people who have schizophrenia awareness clothing, T-shirts and whatnot, and I encourage people to throw on a T-shirt that has schizophrenia awareness. Get people talking about it instead of hiding, whispering behind closed doors like we've done for mental illness for decades, if not centuries. Uh, we're talking about mental illness now. Year, 20, 30 years ago, I couldn't talk about mental illness in the grocery store with somebody. I'd have to whisper it if I did. It was a hushed conversation. Now, I mean, mental health is, you go online, mental health, the words mental health are all over the internet. Yeah. I, I have no problem talking about someone with mental health in a grocery store. It's okay. I mean, who gave the okay to do that? Um, and was it, were, all, were people with mental illness all criminals 20, 30 years ago, and now they're all good people? 
<laughs> no, nothing's changed. It's just, it's someone said along the way, or a bunch of people said, it's okay to talk about now. So the rest of us, sheep, just say, okay, well, I guess it's okay to talk about. Okay, well, that's what we're talking about. How do these social norms start and finish? It's, it's, anyway, so I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be someone who's talking about schizophrenia in public. And uh, it's not easy, but I'm doing it anyway and showing them that. So one of the stats is people with schizophrenia are no more prone to violence than the rest of the general population. Violence is difficult to define. There's a lot of different aspects to violence, kicking, biting, scratching, psychological violence, there's bar fights. But uh, depending on how you define it, one uh, stat is 2% of the population is violent. And that doesn't mean they're all serial killers. They, it just could be psychological violence could be included in that. But people with schizophrenia have the same rate. 2% of people with schizophrenia are violent in that same. But uh, the B British Columbia Schizophrenia Society says that people with untreated schizophrenia can be a bit more violent. And I, I'm trying to find out what that stat is. Is it 3%, 5%, 10%? I, I don't know. But overall, um, we, we're very peaceful. In fact, people with schizophrenia are more prone to be victims of violence than perpetrators because it's hard for us to defend ourselves. I felt very vulnerable. I felt like I had a target on my back. And I was like, please, please don't anybody hurt me, attack me, be mean to me. Just please don't because it was, it was very scary. Right. Well, sometimes um, maybe what some things that get construed as violent can maybe just be erratic behavior. You know, it kind of all depends. Yeah. yeah, it kind of all depends on what uh, what the beholder is seeing and what they interpret. So you have someone who's going through a schizophrenic episode or a psychotic break, and they might be acting, like I said, very erratically and very unpredictably. They may not be hurting anyone or punching anything or breaking um, you know, possessions or anything like that. But you know, again, these things all always kind of come back to what does a the people standing in front of witnessing feel at this moment, they feel a sense of terror and that gets interpreted as violence. That's just my interpretation of that. Yeah. Just because someone's talking to themselves doesn't mean they're going to hurt you. Right. It's, uh, yeah. There's a book called verbal judo, the gentle art of persuasion by Al, uh, by George Thompson mm -hmm. on my website. I've got a list of my best mental health tips and it's uh, some books. That if I mention them, if I mention them here in this podcast, they'll be on that list. Uh, verbal judo is what police officers use to deal with people with words, not weapons. And it's helped me so much in my life. I think it should be taught in schools. Uh, people working in the mental health care system or anybody can use this. It's uh, find out where people are. You have to be able to read body language and have emotional intelligence, but find out where they are. What state are they in? Do they need a hug right now? Are they even listening to you? Are they angry? Are they happy? Find out where they are. And when you do talk from their frame of reference, not yours. So often I'd walk into a room and just start talking about what I wanted to say, thinking everybody was listening. Some people might not have been in the right frame of mind to receive what I was talking about that in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is stay calm. So often we, we rise to match any, es we escalate ourselves because someone else is escalated. Uh, and we just rise to match uh, sort of butt heads against each other. Stay calm. If you can stay calm, that's the best chance of de-escalating somebody else. Police say so often when they uh, have to go to an incident, they uh, people just need to vent. Uh, most people don't cause a scene. They just simply need to be heard. Verbal abuse, they say, is rampant. And so many people have no one to listen to them, have never heard words of encouragement, kindness, praise. And they're stressed and they're just overloaded with too much to do. And they're at their wits end and they're acting out to finally to, to just get some attention. Just simply listen to them. Most of the time, people simply need to be listened to. Sometimes they're beyond that. Sometimes you do have to use force to, to calm them down. Um, but yeah, there's a lady I know, her daughter, her job was to escort criminals from the prison to the courtroom. And she was asked uh, on numerous occasions to escort certain criminals because she had a very calming effect on them. Uh, think about that, your presence when you're around other people. How calming are you? Um, I try to watch the tone of my voice a lot. I'm always sort of monitoring my voice to see how calming it is, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to portray to other people. 
And uh, what kind of vibe do you give off to other people? Are you do you excite other people? Do you aggravate other people, annoy them, or calming? Where are you on that spectrum? And uh, I know you can't be, I know you can't please everybody, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are obviously certain things about that you can actually you can actually affect, um, but certain certain things about you that you really don't have very much control over. You kind of just will send someone off the rails in, in the first place or anyway, like, um, you know, you can walk into a room and just being who you are, you know, maybe a you know, six foot three man and that's it. That's the trigger. And so there you go. But so there's not much you can really do about that, but yeah, voice tones and volumes, uh, do count for a lot. Um, do you think that's do you think that's mostly what really counts when you're dealing with someone who's going through a severe episode or a severe episode you think it's mainly just about the things that you can you can really uh, control I don't know I haven't really been in uh, many situations where I have to calm someone down to be honest I've yeah I that's one thing I would like to do is learn more about what other people are going through, I've just been focused on myself for the last 30 years. Right. And uh, the, the other thing is that I don't know many people with schizophrenia. I haven't met many in my life. I've met some, but for the most part, we just hide. We don't, we don't add, we don't broadcast what we're going through. We've been hiding for many years. In fact, it was just in the last week or two, I uttered the word schizophrenia out loud so that other people in the room could hear in a coffee shop. It took me years to do that. Because before, for all this time, I would say it quietly. If I did have to use the word schizophrenia in a conversation with somebody in a public place, in a coffee shop, on a sidewalk, somewhere where there are other people around who I don't know, strangers who might hear it, I've always whispered it. Until the last week or so, week or two, and I've been, I've said it twice in my local coffee shop. And I don't think anybody was probably even paying attention to what I was saying, but I was darn proud of myself for saying that instead of just all of a sudden lowering my voice when I said that one word, schizophrenia. Darn proud of myself for doing that. And it's probably because I've just, I'm, I've got my own thoughts. I've got more clarity uh, because you're always confused with the disease. It, it's confusing. You're always wondering, I don't know what the proper way to do this is. I don't know what the proper thing to say is. I don't know what the proper way to act is. And you're just always uncertain, always uncertain, doubtful, hesitant. People said I would hesitate before I answered something because I was always wondering, I don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't know how to say it properly. All these things I could took for granted as a kid, I learned, you know, how to walk and talk, essentially. I had to relearn, and it took a long time to relearn them. But, uh, yeah. So all those years from, like, 1994 to 2001, when the symptoms started to kind of abate, um, so how did you really navigate through life through all that time? Because... You know, everything you're describing here sounds pretty terrifying and horrible. And it's just kind of like, how does one even function like that from day to day? You know, like you say, a lot of you just try, you just trying to hide. I think that's what a lot of people with a uh, mental disorder or mental illness do. They just kind of hide whatever their problem is. And then that's what leads to things, other things like maybe drinking and using drugs or, you know, whatever kind of vice they can find. It's just an attempt to hide. Um, but you, you... I think maybe you you hit through different means, but how did you actually just get through one day to the next all that time with these horrifying symptoms? I went to get help in 1994. I was having suicidal thoughts, and I said that's not good. So I went to the local the, my university health clinic. They took me up to the local psych ward in the hospital. That was my introduction into the mental health system. I didn't know I had schizophrenia. Didn't know anything about it. These symptoms crept up a little bit through university, but when the disease hit, it hit hard. And I went from muddling through life just a little bit to flat on my back, incapacitated, not knowing whether I was going to live or die from one moment to the next. In the hospital, they started they're trying to diagnose me, saying, what's wrong with this guy? We have to pinpoint what his disease is or you know, what's wrong. And after so many weeks, they said, we think you've got schizophrenia. That was a bombshell to drop. I'm like, well, what, what's that? Is it a split personality? Jekyll and Hyde? Am I going to kill somebody? Is that what this disease is? I didn't know. I never had any thoughts of killing anybody. Never wanted to. And I never even played hockey as a teenager. I didn't like the fighting. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, so I asked a nurse, I said, how long might it take before I feel better? She said, oh, sometimes it takes people a couple years before they feel better. 
I don't know where she got that two years. I don't know what she was basing that on. And that's all I had to go on. There's very little literature back then for me to read about the disease. There's still is way too little literature about it. There are more books now on it. Anyway, so I was sitting there thinking, well, uh, they just told me I've got this diagnosis. And another lady said it might take two years before I get better. What do I do? That's all I had to go on. So I was sitting there and I said, well, do I fight this or do I just take my life? And in a matter of seconds, I thought, I weighed no pros and cons. I just thought all of a sudden, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to fight this. And I said, okay, now that you've decided that, how are you going to do that? A few seconds went by. I weighed no pros and cons. And then I thought, I'm going to put my life on hold. I accept the fact that I will do nothing that I enjoy for two years. If, when two years comes and I'm better, I will pick my life up from where I left off and move on, doing whatever I want to do, just cured. Hopefully. There is no plan B. It's not, I had no plan of, well, if two years comes and goes, what do I do then? I don't know. So I said, well, that's your plan. When are you going to start this? And all of a sudden, I could feel the clock ticking. I said, well, Matthew, you better start this soon. So how are you going to do this? What, what are you going to do? Well, I was in the psych ward. Uh, I was in the common room. I said, why don't I go into the TV room and see if there's a TV show I can watch for a half an hour or something? Okay, I think that's what I'll do. So I got up out of my chair and started walking across the floor. It, there was more purpose in my stride. It was uh, like running the gauntlet. It's an old term from medieval times, I think, when you just sort of put your head down, barge ahead, and people are shooting at you with arrows or whatever, and you just sort of barge ahead and hope to God you don't get hit. <laughs> mm -hmm. it was, there was an element of that in my stride across the floor. And that was my, that was my, those, those verbatim, word for word, what I was going through in my head and how I approached this. I, I accepted it. I had total acceptance that things were going to be bad. That didn't mean that, so I was, I was very lucky in that. I, other people can snub their nose and say, well, if that's the way you're going to treat me, then I'm going to do this. I'm going to self-medicate or whatever. I'm going to, and I've snubbed my nose at things in my life. We all have, and generally it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I had total acceptance, very happy for that. It didn't mean it was easy. I still had many times where I was terrified I might take my life after that for a number of years. I was in the group, I was in the psych ward for about a year, in and out for a year. And then I was in a group home for three years after that. And uh, it's, uh, the early years are tough, but I want to, what I want to tell people is that with schizophrenia, probably other mental illness too, the, the initial pain can be severe and I get it. It's really difficult, but with treatment, the pain can come down. And it may not go away 100% right away, like you wanted to, like I wanted to, but it goes down to a more manageable level that allows you to carry on longer than you think, longer than you think you could. You think, oh, I don't know how long I can live with this pain. Well, drop it down a little bit. You can live with it a lot longer than you think you can. And uh, Navy SEALs are taught in their training that they are capable of 20 times more than they think they are. They're taken to, the, taken to the brink of physical and mental exhaustion. They say, I can't move another inch. I can't move another muscle. I'm done. And the trainer says, you're not done. You've got not just 5% or 10% or 100% more. You've got 20 times more than you think you do. And they get them back up on their feet moving and show them that, yes, you can keep going further than, than you thought. And I feel I was tested in a similar way with mental illness. I, I'm no Navy SEAL, but... Man, I was—I've—I've uh, I've been shown to myself that I'm capable of way more than I thought, and I believe we all have vast amounts of energy, determination, courage, patience, buried deep inside us, waiting to be used at a moment's notice. And if you can tap into that, and I mean, I was forced to tap into that. I had no other choice but to delve into these. Like it's like the iceberg below the surface. You, you only see a tip of what you really think you can do, but uh, you start tapping into other things, um, and we all have it. We all have it. Sometimes, I mean, thankfully, we don't have to use it most of the time. Right. But for people who want to go after their goals, their dreams, saying you know, and they they tell themselves, "Well, I can't do that. I'm just little old me. Who who am I to do this? Who am I to go after that? I, I can't be that person. I can't be up in the news and the media." I can't be this person doing that. I, I can't do that. Well, 
Why not? Why can't you? Who's saying? And the thing is, there's a, I mean, I, I improved very slowly through my disease, but what I'm noticing now in the last five years of my advocacy work for MindAid is I'm doing things now that I, I couldn't do five years ago with MindAid. I was scared to phone a web designer saying, can you make a website for me? I'm like, oh, look at me on the phone making, wanting a web designer. Oh, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> and now it's like I'm doing things like I was in LA Weekly with 4 million readers. And I'm, I saw, I'm I saw a little clip more. of that. Yeah. Pardon me? I saw a little clip of that. Yeah, I noticed oh. that you know, on the Facebook page. That was pretty cool. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, yeah so there's a book called uh, The Motivation Myth by Jeff Hayden. And he talks about, he says, people think they need to wait for this lightning bolt of inspiration to take action. And they say, sometimes that does happen. But most of the time, no lightning bolt comes. And we just sort of drift off, not following what we want to do. And he says, don't wait for the motivation to take action. Take action, and these small actions will give you, bit by bit, more motivation. Take, make a phone call. Make a post. Uh, put uh, put advocate on your profile, on your social media profile. That's all I did. I was not, I did not, I did not take any advocacy certification programs. I do not have a degree in advocacy. One day on my Facebook page, I just said, Matthew Dixon, mental health advocate. That's all I did. There's a book called Click Millionaires. He talks about how uh, so many people think they need to have uh, all these initials after the name in order for them to tell other people what to do. <laughs> There's so many people out there who want to learn what you already know and just simply start talking about it. He says you can have a website, a blog, up for free in minutes. Social media, up for free in minutes. YouTube, up for free in minutes. Slap advocate or whatever you want to do with your life. I mean, if, I mean, if you need a degree, yes, you should, you know, you need that. But for a lot of this stuff, you can help other people. Uh, just simply talk about it, make videos, talk about it. It's, uh, and he, he says, you don't have to wait to be, have, have all these uh, credentials to do stuff. It's, uh, it's people who, who do have many initials after their name saying, who am I to talk about this? Right. Um, so, yeah. So I watched that video of um, Vikram Patel. Did I say his name right? Vikram Patel. Yep. I did watch that video, uh, that TED Talk that he did. Um, so one thing I did notice that um, I think towards the end of the video, he started saying what, when he was in school studying medicine, he decided to go in the route of psychiatry. And he noticed that his family was pretty disappointed by that decision. Like they, they wanted him to go into uh, neuroscience or something, something I guess with a bit more of a sexier reputation, I suppose. And they were bummed that he was going to go into psychiatry. Um, and so I started thinking, well, why is that? Why would they be so disappointed by him studying psychiatry? Was it just like a lack of credibility in mental health services um, or or just a lack of credibility in the idea of mental illness itself? So... I, I don't know. Think about where we came from, though. I mean, we used to think that it was okay to have slaves. Mm -hmm. We used to think it was okay for women not to vote. We used to think that. I mean, we didn't, it, it was not common to have conversations in public about kindness and respect to other people. You just didn't talk about that. Right. And we're on the, the, we're slowly coming out of that era. We're talking more, more about mental health now in the last 10 years, especially with the pandemic. It's a process. I don't know why. I mean, who, I mean, whoever said slavery was a good thing in the first place? I mean, how I, th I just think it's wonderful that we're talking about all this stuff these days about, you know, how to treat other people, how to respect them and kindness. There's uh, a line in the singer Jewel's song, I think it's called Hands. And there's a line she says, in the end, only kindness matters. And that stuck with me, just kindness to other people. And I'm just so happy that we're having these conversations about how to treat people and respect people for their differences. And there's a documentary on TV about uh, women uh, who rock in the, in the music industry, top musicians, uh, female musicians. And they were saying, you know, years ago, we had to fight to be a woman in the music industry. And now like singers with Billie Eilish, uh, she, they're saying, you know, Billie, Billie Eilish probably has never even had to thought, think about, I can't do this. She says, no, I'm just gonna go up and do it. She, and all these older musicians laid the groundwork for that. So I'm, I'm trying to lay groundwork for people saying it's okay to talk about schizophrenia. 
Oh, and by the way, for mental health in developing countries, for some of us who don't even think about talking about that, let alone thinking we can't talk about it, I'm trying to start conversations about that. It's uh, over 270 million people in developing countries have no mental health care. That's like almost all the U.S. mentally ill and untreated. Right. And it, is it in the news? You start. It, it, there are lots of articles online and information about mental health in developing countries, but is it mainstream? I want this to be mainstream. Uh, it, it, look, you start thinking about other causes too in developing countries. So what about cancer in developing countries? And what about you name it? The list goes on. All the things we have here of things, ailments, they've got two, if not more. And uh, maybe that should be my next step to cancer in developing countries. Who's who's treating that? Well, I guess I, I think the, the point I was trying to make was that his family didn't seem happy with his choice to go in this direction, though, because they didn't think it would it would make a really worthwhile life for himself out of that. So, like, I think it's like, and maybe it has to do with his own his own background, and the culture he comes from. I don't know, but it's um, like they thought it wasn't a very respectable direction, even though he's still a medical doctor, he's still treating patients, but it wasn't very respected. And so because of that, that's kind of like um, maybe a microcosm of the, of the larger problem there. It's like, you know, people's internal workings is not a very well-respected area of humanity. You know, we can see things like the dire pod, we can see things like slavery, we can, we can see things like you know, people being tied to trees, chained to trees and things like that. That's obvious. Um, we can see that, but what we can't see is, you know, the brutality that's going on inside, so to speak, you know, and the misunderstanding about what really is happening here. Um, you know, we come a long way in, in the sense that we now know what mental disorders are, like schizophrenia and things like that, whereas before in centuries past, we thought it was like demon possession or something like that. But it seems like a lot of it, uh, still of the reaction to it, seems to be somewhat similar. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know how <laughs> this all started. I question that, too. How, how did it all start? Why Why can't we talk about all this stuff? Why, I mean, I'm glad we were starting to more and more, but uh, where did it all come from? Beats me. <laughs> yeah. So you think uh, you think the only way to really raise the credibility of it is just to have more broader conversations about it and have more TED Talk um, videos about it, like with uh, Dr. Patel? I don't know. Uh, I do know that there's an environmental advocate called Catherine Hayhoe, and she says that the biggest thing you can do to help the environment is even before putting solar panels up, buying, buying an electric vehicle, is having conversations about it about the environment. So I'm just taking a step from her. I've, I've made a video on YouTube for saying, if you want to help people with mental illness in developing countries, just start having conversations about it. It's uh, one of the best things to do is just to get people aware about it. So I don't know if that's totally accurate, but I'm thinking, well, it can't hurt. <laughs> well, it has to start somewhere. I mean, the awareness of it has to begin somewhere. And that's yeah. like, like you said, like the more, the more willingness people are to be open about it, I mean, that, 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 that kind of kicks things off in general. Yeah. Right. Well, another idea I had just the other day on another podcast with somebody, I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, we've been talking about mental health for a long time now and talking about, you know, trying to have conversations the last 10 years or so, slowly talking more and more about it. The pandemic blew, blew it open. We're talking about mental health so much more now. And so it's new. We're new to talking about this. We're like, oh, my gosh, look at me talking about mental health in the grocery store with somebody. Oh, look at this. Isn't this nice? And I was watching. Uh, I thought, well, what about like the uh, the People's Climate March? I think it was 2014. They had hundreds of thousands of people in the streets all over the world for the environment. It was the world's biggest march or something in history. And people were up, you know, uh, just upset about what was what we were doing to the planet and everything. And I thought, well, why don't we have a mental health march? Organize a mental health march in cities around the world saying, you know, we need better treatment. Our mental health care systems, there's a man, his name's Shekhar Saxena. He spoke at the UN. He's from Harvard. He said every country when it comes to mental health care is a developing country. So, yes, I'd still rather be in Canada than some places in Africa for mental health care. 
But essentially what he's saying is in Canada with our, I mean, Canada is a free healthcare system, but it doesn't mean it's perfect. And it, it we talk about that here saying there are people here who, who aren't getting the treatment they need. It's free, but it's not the best. And it's essentially the mental health and addiction system here is essentially, according to Shekhar Saxena, is, is it's a developing country's mental health care system. But there's a man in Nova Scotia, Canada, who radically improved his mental health and addiction system where he lived. And he's trying to show the rest of Canada how to do how to do the same. He got wait times from five to eight months down to three weeks or one week or less and many other things. And he did it by making it a client centered system, not a bureaucracy and paperwork centered system. Treat the patient. When a patient walks into a room, into a clinic, how many seconds or minutes is it before you start asking them what they need and how to help them? Or do you put them into a waiting room and then another waiting room, get them to fill out a long form? Uh, when you have an answering machine, if you're a mental health organization, do you say, if you're in a crisis, uh, phone 911 at the very start of the message or, or, any other, uh, or any other crisis number you have for them? Do you put that at the start of the message or at the very end? Many of them put it at the end. And uh, it's just things like that, all coming from the client's point of view. Make it from the client. When they need the help, how do you treat them the fastest and the best? And the book, he's got a book called, his name's Todd Leader. It's called It's Not About Us. And it's about how to get Canada doing what he's already done for his part of Canada. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that other countries could use, you know, learn a lot from it. He's, he's talking about Canada, but I think other countries could gain from it too. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm assuming. Do so you think it's more of a systemic problem where there's just too much bureaucracy, too many artificial barriers in between patient and clinician? According to Todd Leader, that's what he says. So it's, uh, and, and I'm, I'm no expert. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn more about this stuff. And I, I quote other people, but I'm, yeah. So, all right. So Mind Aid has been up for how many years has it been up? Five years. Five years. Okay. So, is it, so it's, it's a kind of like a central hub for all of these different organizations that help with mental health. So, say we we're talking five years from now. Where would you like where would you like Mind Aid to be? I'd like to have Mind Aid concerts annually, mm-hmm. uh, multi-city, multi-country, raising funds for people with mental illness in developing countries. That's uh, something I'd like to see. I've started mentioning Mind Aid concerts concerts to people, and so far people think it's a really good idea. One, I've reached out to some musicians. Uh, one musician one musician said I got she said she got chills thinking about a Mind Aid concert to help people suffering horribly. So that's 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 probably my biggest idea. A mental health march is another one. I, that just popped into my head the other day. So that's new for me to think about, but I've got a, uh, you look up a people's climate march video and you see the people on the microphones angry and upset and fed up with what they think needs to change. And just watch that, watch videos like that thinking this could be a, this could be a mental health march with us saying enough is enough. We've been talking about this. Change it. Make the changes. Don't just talk about it. Make the changes. And it's uh, I'm I'm just wanting people to get more in people's faces about this, saying it needs to change now. Like this is ridiculous. It needs to change because if changes can be made and we're not, it's frustrating when you've got someone dying in your arms because the system hasn't changed. It is to see your loved ones die. I've lost people. It's, it's you know, I, I could be with them right now, hanging out, having fun. They're dead. And when you have a system that can prevent that, it's, it's frustrating. And then the fact that you couldn't talk about that, you couldn't even talk about it for so many years. It, it's sad. It's frustrating. We've been sitting here in frustration, in frustration behind closed doors, whispering while people are dying. I felt like I was living in the Holocaust. I've never been in the Holocaust. It's the best analogy I can come up with, where you can't talk about this stuff. Your people's lives are at stake, and you're hushed. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Well, we've we've let the cat out of the bag. I'm very curious to see where this is going, for improving our mental health system. Todd Leader's book, he's done it. And he's he's showing other people how to lead the way in developed countries. And in developing countries, we've already got a system for low-cost, proven effective, scalable, basic mental health care. 
and it needs to be rolled out. It's not perfect. We can't save everybody with mental health issues. We can't. Some will die for probably as long as we live on this planet. But we can help a lot more of them, a lot more. We can make people's lives easier, our loved ones, instead of watching them sitting there in the armchair in our living room suffering, and we're sitting there thinking, I don't know how to help them. The mental health care system isn't helping them. What do we do? What do we do? Somebody please help us. I was crying out in desperation for help. You Google the headline, desperately trying to save your life. There are hundreds of headlines in the news with that. I was desperate. And we need to talk about desperation more because it's it's horrible. So, Um, yeah. Vikram Patel also mentioned something about uh, what he called task shifting in his video. Sounded like a pretty good idea on the surface, at least. Like, whereas, and he made an analogy where you can train a layperson to deliver babies. You know, something, you know, as complicated of a procedure as that is, you can train someone to become an expert in delivering babies just by, you know, taking them on board and showing them the ropes and telling them this is how you do it. And then they do it and they do it and they do it and they get very good at it. Um, And he mentioned this idea of task shifting in terms of dealing with people with mental health issues as a way of kind of democratizing um, the entire system itself here, because he mentioned what you mentioned earlier is like, in some countries where there are millions and millions of people suffering, there's maybe a thousand healthcare providers at most to, to help all of them who have like, you know, official credentials in this area to be designated. Yes, you are fit to care for these people. But he mentioned this idea of task shifting as a way of kind of taking power out of that and giving it to people who are, who have adequate training, but don't go through the years, years of academic rigor to get, to come out with these, you know, all these alphabet suits at the end of their name. Remember? Yeah. He said that's, he noticed that back in the nineties, he said, we've got all these documents, books on how to treat somebody with uh, physical health problems where there's no hospital or doctor around for hundreds of miles. How do you give someone some basic physical health care? There were doc- books on that for decades. He says, why don't we do the same thing for mental health? So he did. And that's what basic mental health care is. He says, with task shifting, you, you go into a community and you find some people who have some basic skills of some sort. Maybe it's leadership. Maybe it's maternal health skills. And you teach them how to give someone basic mental health care. It's not advanced, but it's, it's, it, it's sort of like your best bang for your buck. You can help a lot of people. Uh, it won't help everybody, but it can help a lot of people simply. And uh, there's a uh, the World Health Organization. They have a, a website or platform or section of their site called MH Gap Mental Health Gap Action Program, and they have documents there, 100 page documents on how to give basic mental health care, how to train people to give basic mental health care, how to train trainers to give basic mental health care. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's this has all been done. Uh, strong minds, they use group-based talk therapy. They don't use medications. Fine mind doesn't use medications either. Uh, strong minds gets women in groups of eight to ten people, roughly, and they give they have talk-based therapy in groups. And within a matter of months, uh, many of the women are depression-free, and they're trying to roll it out. Uh, women can teach it to other women, and it's scalable and it's it's spreading. And they're just trying to accelerate the spreading. So do you agree with uh, Dr. Patel that that's potentially the, um, the the real solution to the problem here, or at least a very strong, viable one? I don't know. I'm a nobody. I really don't know. I'm not an expert. Mm-hmm. I just go with what people tell me. And uh, it's uh, <coughs> it sounds good to me. I, I'm trying to help uh, promote what they do. It's, uh Yeah. Well, I think it makes lots of sense to me. I mean, just on a, on a surface level, I think it makes plenty of sense. Whereas, you know, if you have an issue where you have people who um, can't get the services where, that they need and there is a lack of qualified help, then increasing that number seems to be the best logical solution. Yeah, it's uh, – and what do people want? Yeah, people in their communities, they – should be able to choose whatever they want. Uh, some of them don't have the luxury of 
advanced uh, mental health or physical health care systems like Houston, Texas, say, or any big city. Mm-hmm. But uh, if they have access to basic mental health care and, and they can help some people, I mean, some of them, some of them, some of them are a bit skeptical when they when the they first hear about this stuff. They say, "Well, does it work?" You know, uh, but when they see someone who is disheveled, walking around, unable to do much, lying in bed, and so many months or so much time later, they're up working in a field or doing whatever job. Uh, contributing to their community, they say, wow, can we get more of this? So uh, it's, uh, some people don't want it, some people, um, but uh, it's uh, seems to be the way to go. So, yeah, I think it sounds like the easiest solution, but that's just you know, my take on it. I don't know how easy logistically it would really be. I mean, you have to be, you have to have people who are willing to teach others. That's one thing. And then you have to have people who are willing to be taught. And, you know, I can see a potential problem with the stigmatization of mental illness and people having trouble having people stepping forward and say, yes, I'll do this. Um, but I think on the whole, in terms of just sheer numbers, I think that makes more sense than anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, uh, Matthew, where can people find you? We know about the website. Where else can people get in contact with you to learn more? Everything's actually right at the website, mindaid.ca, M-I-N-D-A-I-D.ca. I'm on many social media. Uh, check out my YouTube. I've got mm-hmm. a lot of uh, videos on how to improve your own mental health, the tips there. I've got on my website a list of best mental health tips with my top books and resources, articles uh, to help your own mental health. Uh, there's a brain uh, music therapy uh, program you can get. It's uh that I linked there, Dr. Daniel Amon's Brain Warriors Way music program. And uh, there's some resources there for people with schizophrenia. I talk about uh, Lauren Kennedy. She's in Alberta, Al- Alberta, Canada. She has a Living Well with Schizophrenia YouTube channel. That's a great place to learn more about schizophrenia. I'm really impressed with that channel. And, uh, yeah, uh, please go to uh, – everything's on the site, mindday.ca, and uh, you can find out more there. Please check it out. Have a look around the website, yeah. and maybe donate to some of these nonprofits. Uh, many nonprofits these days accept monthly donations of very small amounts, like three dollars a month, mm-hmm. five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. Uh, I mean, three dollars a month is what a dime a day, ten cents a day, mm-hmm. to help someone with mental health care in a developing country. That's what uh, that's what people pay. People pay more than that for a Planet Fitness membership. So, Planet Fitness yeah. is as cheap of a gym membership as you're ever going to find. But yeah. uh, I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes, so I'll be there for people to pick through as they like. Uh, Matthew, um, we do have a closing tradition on the podcast where I like to have people, because we talk about, we've been on closing on an hour now. You know, so much is talked about, so much is discussed. If we can kind of condense that into maybe one or two lines, or if you want people to remember one thing and one thing only, to get from this conversation, if nothing else, what would you say it would be? I would say for people going through mental illness or for people who aren't going through mental illness, but maybe wanting more out of life, uh, maybe afraid to tackle the dreams, you are capable of so much more than you think. So much more. Uh, keep fighting with your mental illness. Keep fighting after your dreams. Uh, take one small step at a time because all those steps add up. I only took one pedal stroke at a time. But millions of them added up to me going across the country of Canada. It's uh, and it's just keep going. Yep. You're capable of so much more than you think. Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, analogy for life itself. Here, I mean, think about what it takes to actually bike bike ride through a country the size of Canada. I mean, you told me earlier uh, off camera that it was uh, two months. That's a hell of a devotion to spend two months of your life. <laughs> bike riding across an entire country. So, and you can't obviously can't do that all in one day. So you take it one day at a time and it adds up to two months, but at the end of which, Hey, you did something that what a fraction of people ever do. Yeah. Yeah. It put a lot of wind in my sails, gave me confidence. Yeah. I, I encourage people to, when you're healthy, do the things you want to do, build confidence in yourself because someday that might help you. Uh, having that confidence, knowing you can do that, because when if something horrible happens to you, like me, 
I mean, that bike trip gave me confidence. It, it may have, I don't know for sure, but it may have given me the confidence to keep fighting through schizophrenia. I don't know, but it's uh, all these things add up. It's like factors, all these factors in your life, all these things that are good, hap- that are good that are happening to you, all the things that are bad. How do they play out? Uh, build some confidence in yourself. Go, uh, go climb a mountain. I dare you. <laughs> It'll be easier than you think. All right. Well, I think we'll end it there. That's a great way to kind of do a little send off there. Matthew Dixon, thanks so much for showing up, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, No problem. All right, everyone. Uh, This is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. My name is Sean. Until next time, move forever. I'll see you on the other side. Peace. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments, cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R E N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.